Radio Mano Papachango. How's it going? This is Matt. I'm an American living in Taiwan, doing a master's here in humanities and environmental science. I used to live here before teaching English, but I got called back when uh, the love of my life, or so I thought, uh, ended things, blindsided me after our three-year relationship. So it's been tough. Also lost my dad suddenly this year after five years of not speaking. So it's been a really hard year, but your podcast and everything you do has really helped a lot. And being in this beautiful country also has helped a lot. So I've come a long way, but still got a long way to go. I've been a listener since your first appearance on Duncan's podcast. And yeah, you've helped me a lot in my life. And I know a lot of people feel the same. So thanks for everything and keep it up. Peace. Hey Chris, hey everybody, it's Nick out here in Pingdong, Taiwan. I moved out here a couple months ago and started working as an English teacher and um, it's not too bad, um, but it's pretty lonely sometimes. Um, I left uh, my family, friends, and beautiful girlfriend back in the Pacific Northwest and I, I miss them a lot, but um, it's good to be out here. It's good to have alone time, be in my own head think about the things I really want. Um, that time is super valuable to me. And uh, so here I am uh, with this grand plan to come here and teach English for a year, but I'm already thinking about pulling it up and continuing on to India to do some yoga, meditation, maybe do a yoga teacher training course. Um, these are some things I've always wanted to do out there in India, and I think now's the time. Um, uh, you know, got this one precious life, so Got to keep doing the thing that I want to do. Ain't that the truth? Uh, I hope that um, Matt and Nick, who are both in Taiwan, uh, can connect. Uh, let me know if I can facilitate that, guys, if you're still there. Um, anyway, listen, uh, this episode is with Rafe Kelly. This is one of my favorite kinds of episodes. First of all, because it was facilitated by a listener uh, a while back, a guy named uh, Andrew Johnson <clears throat> uh, reached out to me and said, hey, there's this guy, Rafe Kelly. He's really cool. Uh, it'd be great to hear him on the podcast. And he uh, CC'd Rafe and connected us and uh, took me a while uh, as everything seems to take me a while, but it took me a while to get in touch with Rafe and finally did and finally uh, had some Wi-Fi and we hooked it up. And Rafe, is a, Rafe has this um, thing called natural movement uh, training. His website is Evolve Move Play, movement training for humans. Uh, he uh, studied martial arts and parkour and uh, all kinds of physical stuff. And I thought we were going to talk primarily about that, <clears throat> but we ended up talking about all kinds of other stuff. Rafe is a really smart dude, really deep, um, deep thinker, 
Um, yeah, you know, onions peel layer after layer after layer. Not that I cried uh, or Rafe cried. Neither one of us cried as far as I know. Um, but um, we had a really good conversation and it, it went places that I wasn't expecting. So I'm really appreciative to Andrew for hooking this up and to Rafe for making the time and for being as, um, you know, candid and um, organic as he is and was. So I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy this one. I've been recording a lot of uh, podcasts recently. I apologize for the delay in posting them. Uh, You know, when I spend a day, record two podcasts. I'm pretty exhausted by the end of that. And um, I feel like I've done my work for the day. Although I realize that on your end, it seems like nothing's happening. So I'm busting them out um, because I'm going to be out in the van at the end of May, leaving beautiful Crestone, Colorado. And um, I don't know when I'll have stable Wi-Fi again. So you know, I'll be doing Romas and Tomas. I, I am going to get back to the Tomas, by the way. I see people commenting on that on Reddit, and I get emails from people. Oh, when are you going to do more of those? Uh, I will. I promise I will. But I guess maybe I'm I'm saving them for when I'm sitting by a fire somewhere in Idaho and I don't have Wi-Fi, uh, so I can't do a podcast with a guest even if I, you know, wanted to. So uh, I'll just sit by the fire and, and tell some old man stories. Um, I promise I will get back to that. I've got a list of, of, uh, you know, little mnemonic devices, little, uh, keywords to remind me of the events and the story. And, um, yeah, there's probably, I don't know, 20, 25 more of those on the list. So I will get to those. Uh, before I get into this, uh, conversation with Rafe, a couple of house keeping or or updates i just appeared on um uh paul saladino's podcast that was just released today tuesday april 6th so that's up you can see that uh, on youtube uh if you just um there's it's a video component uh let's see it's listed under are we civilized to death with chris ryan and it's uh paul saladino's um, YouTube page. Uh, it's also up on his, um, website, which I think is, uh, what is it? Hoof to something like that. Uh, hold on. I'm looking at the history. I was just looking at it a second ago. It's, uh, heart and co heart and co. And then Paul is, I recorded a podcast with Paul yesterday uh, for this podcast. That'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I've got, man, I, I as I said, I've recorded a bunch of them and uh, really interesting people. Um, Robert Wright uh, is an author. He wrote Zero Sum. He wrote um, The Moral Animal about evolutionary psychology He's written uh, a book about, his last book I think is called Why Buddhism is True. Uh, he's coming up. Dean Radin, who's probably the world's uh, leading investigator of um, telepathy and um, precognitive 
phenomena, things like that. Um, a guy named Jason Boshore is interesting. He's a green trader who wrote to me and, and said, hey, you know, I listen to your podcast and sometimes you say things about um, industrial farming that uh, aren't quite accurate. And, uh, you know, I, I work in this area and I'd be happy to talk with you. So sat down with him, talked about um, farming, grain trading, uh, you know, what's really going on in in that part of the world. <clears throat> and then I, I had a recording the other day with Tracy Clark Flory, who was one of my first guests on this podcast. I think she was guest number nine, maybe, way back in the day, 450-some episodes ago. She's... um. At the time, she was writing a column for Salon.com about sex, and I think she had uh, written a review, or she did an interview with me, maybe, when Sexaton came out. And uh, so when I started the podcast, I reached out to her, and she agreed to to be a guest. And uh, here we are, the years later, she's now married, has a kid, and she's just published a memoir um, that is really fucking good it's called want me and it's a memoir of her uh i guess sexual awakening um so we talked about that uh i had only read half of it when we talked so we didn't really you know there are no spoiler alerts because i didn't really know how the book ended um but it was a I think a really valuable conversation um, because both of us tend to intellectualize the erotic and eroticize the intellectual. So um, we have something very fundamental in common. The other thing I wanted to mention to you is that Mike, uh, my boy Mike, has been putting together uh, my own YouTube channel something that I've never bothered to do because, uh, you know, you know the story. Um, anyway, if you like listening to podcasts or watching podcasts on YouTube, um, subscribe to my channel. It's Chris Ryan. That's it. Uh, and you will see that you're there because you'll see all that familiar Chris Ryan paraphernalia. Um, and I've been recording as many uh, podcasts as I could with video component recently because I'm using um, a platform that has a video, kind of like a Zoom thing, um, so you can just record the video uh, as well as the audio. So when the guest is down with it, I record the video. Uh, when the guest prefers just audio, then we just do audio. But in any case, all the episodes... Uh, coming up will be on there and Mike is going back and posting from the archives as well um, so eventually they'll all be up there for the moment he's got uh, yeah a couple of Romas there are a bunch of videos that I recorded um, in various places with various people uh, over the last few years when I set up a, a camera like there's one with Duncan Trussell and Portland. Um, but as far as the recent ones go, Brian Hare, um, the uh, scientist and expert on 
dog cognition that uh, was episode 465 that's up there so if you want to see the video of that conversation that's there and then the audio of uh, Jenny is up there as well as the most recent audio so these probably won't have the intro like what you're listening to right now they'll just start at the beginning of our conversation Um, so if you come here for the intros then you probably don't want to do the YouTube thing. But if you don't really give a shit what I say at the beginning and you just come for the conversations, then YouTube is an excellent option for you. Uh, What else? I'm going to do a couple of aromas. I'm going to do aroma soon. I was going to talk about it now, but I'm already 12 minutes in and fuck it. I'll talk about it in aroma. Um, I read an article recently that sort of made me want to rant a little bit about the myth of black athletic superiority. So uh, if you want to read the article, uh, it's called, it's in The Guardian, came up uh, March 29th, so almost a week ago, and it was about March Madness, this uh, basketball tournament that just finished last night. And the uh, it's by Reagan Griffin Jr. And the article, the headline is, As March Madness Rolls On, So Will the Myths of Black Athletic Superiority. So maybe you can see where that's going and how I intend to respond to it. But I will save that for Aroma so as to not contaminate this conversation with Rafe Kelly. So again, Rafe Kelly, if you want to check out his website, it's evolvemoveplay.com. And I imagine after you listen to this conversation, you might want to know more about him. Uh, Interesting dude. I hope to meet him in person and uh, who knows, maybe climb a tree together or something. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you as always for your attention. I'm going to play you out with a song that's appropriate in three three ways. First of all, it's called I Love the Way You Move. So that relates to movement, right? Uh, The uh, second reason is that it is just such a fucking awesome song. So that always makes it appropriate. And third is that I recently listened to an episode of the uh, Broken Record podcast, which I highly recommend. I think I've mentioned it before. Um, it's uh, Rick Rubin, famous producer, also a musician himself, uh, Beastie Boys. I think I said he was in the Backstreet Boys <laughs> the first time I mentioned him. Um, I'm just barely, you know, barely hanging on to popular culture by my fingertips at this point. Um, anyway, Rick Rubin is an awesome dude. Turns out we have a mutual friend. And um, when I uh, I mentioned to this mutual friend, like, hey, I've been listening to Rick Rubin's podcast recently. You know, please, if it's appropriate, please tell him, like, fuck, yeah, this is really good. And he said, uh, yeah, well, Rick knows knows who you are and know, knows your work. So I'll be sure to mention it to him. I'm like, fuck, Rick Rubin knows who I am? Man, that's cool, I guess. I mean, that in five bucks will get you a latte at Starbucks, but still. 
Um, anyway, Rick Rubin did uh, an episode with Andre 3000 from Outcast, who you're about to hear, that was really moving, really uh, just a beautiful conversation. Because, uh, you know, you listen to this guy and you think, ah, oh, this guy, he's on top of the world, everything's great. He's so funky, he's so cool, he's so rich, he's so popular, like, yeah, he's got it all, man. And then you listen to this conversation and you hear a real human being dealing with a history of depression and learning disabilities and um, a level of introspection and self-awareness. Um, that can be a real burden, no matter how successful or rich or popular you are. And it's always good to be reminded of that. Um, so he's been on my mind recently. And uh, when I listen to him, uh, it resonates in a in a deeper way. So I hope you enjoy this song. This is The Way You Move and uh, by Outcast. And this conversation is with Rafe Kelly. This episode is brought to you by nobody, no company, no hidden agendas. So if you support this podcast, if you want to support this podcast, please do do it directly, not by buying something from some third party, but by telling your friends, leaving a review on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to the podcast. Um, if you got extra cash lying around that you want to throw my way, go to my website and you will find many ways to do it. Um, and if you do support the podcast through my website, you have access to all the eBooks free. Uh, and uh, if you Support it for a while. We'll send you a T-shirt if you want one or a signed book or whatever it is that would make you happy. Stickers, whatever we have. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm going to stop talking now, I promise. Although you get a momentum when you're sitting in front of a microphone, you start to get a momentum and it, it becomes hard to stop talking because you think there's something I haven't mentioned. But I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to play the damn song and get on with the damn podcast. Thanks for listening. Much love to everybody out there. Ready for action, nip it in the bud, we never relaxing. Outcast is everlasting, not clashing, not at all. But see, my nigga went to do a little acting. Now that's for anyone asking. Give me one and pass them. Drip, drip, drop, there it goes an orgasm. Now you coming out the side of your face, we tapping right into your memory banks. Thanks. So click at the ticket, let's see your seatbelt fasten. Trunk rattling like two midgets in the back seat rattling. Speaker box vibrate the tag, make it sound like aluminum cans in a bag. But I know y'all wanted that 808, can you feel that BASS bass? But I know y'all wanted that 808, can you feel that BASS all I do
turning left, turning right, are they looking at me? But I was looking at them, they're there on the dance floor. Now they got me in the middle, feeling like a man whore. Especially the big girl, big girls need love too, no discrimination here, squirrel. So keep your hands off my cheeks, let me study how you about to be, you big freak. Skinny, slim women, got the camel toe within them, you can hump them, lift them, bend them, give them something to remember. Hell out timber when you fall through the chop shop. Take a deep breath and exhale, your ex-male friend, boyfriend was boring as hell. Well, let me listen to the story you tell, and we can make moves like a person in jail. On the low road. I'm here with natural movement expert Rafe Kelly, uh, and uh, we we had a we're kind of redoing a few minutes here. We had some technical difficulties or, or biological <laughs> difficulties, child-based difficulties. <laughs> we had some, toddlers. We had some kids, and it's funny. We were talking about how uh, you know kids love to sort of naturally run around and move and climb things and all that, and. You know, for a couple of minutes, I thought, well, it's appropriate. We've got a kid in the background. Uh, and then after a few <laughs> minutes, I thought, man, people have headphones on. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we were talking about how a lot of your work is trying to bring people back into a natural um, relationship with their bodies and movement and uh, play as opposed to work, right? Working out. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the word right there, right? Yeah, exactly. Because work, by definition, is doing something you'd rather not be doing, right? And uh, you were talking about how Hunter... Tell the story again about the guy who took his kettlebells to somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, my uh, my friend Tom Montjoy, he, uh, he's got a kind of thing called Primal Mover. People can check it out. But he... Um, if I, if I remember correctly, he was somewhere in Micronesia, and he, you know, he was out there doing research as an anthropology student, 
and he took his kettlebells and like a, I think a set of rings and so he was like running and doing kettlebell swings and rings and the, the natives just thought it was hilarious they thought it was the most bizarre thing that they'd ever seen um, so you know as I understand it in, in a lot of indigenous languages there there's not really a strong distinction between the word for play and the word for work right physical activity or whatever it is it's, it tends to be referred to in the same way and so you know, the basic idea of evolve, move, play is we evolved to move and we evolved to be motivated to pursue movement either through, you know, the necessities of life, um, which many of us don't have anymore, or through play. Hmm. And so it seems like uh, this is this rich motivational resource we can use to get people moving again and, you know, kind of solving the, the, the problems the fitness industry is failing to solve. Uh, and we're, we're really just not respectful of it or don't understand how deep and how impactful it can be and how powerfully it can motivate people. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how so many things are happening now. And, uh, you know, you and I are both part of this in our own ways of trying to reconnect people with aspects of life that would have been considered standard issue a hundred or five hundred or ten thousand years ago right mm -hmm. i mean there's this whole paleo movement in nutrition in in exercise in sexuality in you know politics i'd like to see more in politics it could be argued that universal basic income is a return to a hunter-gatherer uh sort of understanding of equality and egalitarianism um you know wim hof with jumping in cold water right like everybody was yeah. jumping in cold water 500 years ago um it, it's just I wanted to take a bath yeah, you you want to be cold? You jump in the river. You know, if if it's winter, well, it's winter. What are you going to do? You're not going to, yeah. you know, heat a whole bunch of water. So it, it's just interesting. Or or even James Nestor's book about breathing, right? You know, breathe through your nose. Well, people used to know that. You didn't have to be told that. And it it's weird. It seems like we need to be taught to do things that everybody used to know how to do. Um, yeah. go ahead. So I think, you know, the, the basic paradigm, I think, is that when we remove some of the, the kind of normal stimulus that an organism sort of organizes itself in relationship to, that it tends to create some kind of derangement, right? Mm. That, uh, you know, one of my favorite sort of insights comes from the hygiene hypothesis, um, which yeah. is basically that the reason that we have a spike in allergies is because of a lack of exposure to dirt. Yeah, we become too clean. So it turns out that your your immune system basically has evolved to calibrate itself off of exposure to uh, microbes um, that are beneficial or you know not harmful, and some that are harmful, but just not too many of them, right? And that when you when you take that stimulus away, the immune system becomes hyper reactive and sort of goes haywire. And I think that a lot of our physical systems are are the same way, right? I, I think. I, I believe there's a pain immune system, for instance. Like, I think that um, a lot of people are suffering chronic pain because they actually are not injured frequently enough. Wow, I'd never heard that before. That's really interesting. Is there scientific backing for that, or is this just a hunch you're working on? Yeah, this is more of a hunch. I, I, I haven't looked deeply into it, but we do know that most pain, that, like most back pain, doesn't appear to have any sort of reason that it's happening. Lots of people are, are suffering chronic pain in our culture. It's not clear why. 
But if we analogize off of the, the immune system, right, and, the, and literally pain in the immune system are actually very closely aligned, um, you, when you suffer a scrape, like a small abrasion or a small cut or a bruise or like a minor sprain of a joint, all of that is information that's being sent to your system. And then that system can learn to, uh, to calibrate what, what is actually a signal worth paying attention to. Mm. So when I was uh, mm. teaching parkour a few years ago, I had a young man come in who, uh, who'd been sedentary basically his whole life. He was 13 years old and he, he had played video games his whole life. So he finally took an interest in parkour because of Mirror's Edge and things like that. And he, he sprained his ankle. It was a minor ankle sprain. You know, the next day he was walking just fine. But it was so painful for him that he actually went into shock, right? He developed all his face, you know, uh, blanched, right? He got tunnel vision. We had to sit him down, talk him through everything to do to treat someone with shock. Hmm. And I realized that, like, if this kid had sprained his ankle alone in the woods, he would have died because of his body's overreaction to the stimulus of pain because his system wasn't calibrated effectively. Mm. So this is this is something that I could do more research on, but it, but it's something that I, yeah, it's, this is my hunch, is that people need to experience um, a certain level of regular exposure to to nociceptive signaling in order for their, their body. Nociception is a primary kind of component of the pain system because pain is an output of the nervous system, right? You always have nociceptive signaling to, to your to your um, to your central nervous system, so your body has to decide whether that signal is worth putting into your attention sphere, right? And so when there's no signal coming in all the time, or very very low level of signal all the time, then any signal gets interpreted potentially as a massive uh, problem. Yeah. Right? And then the system's also weird because you you know once you have pain. You're actually potentiating the neural pathway of pain, and then your body can start reacting to stress by by essentially firing that pathway, even though there's no structural damage at the end of that pathway. So there's a yeah, yeah, like a phantom limb situation or something. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. You know, I, I've thought about, I, I love the hygiene hypothesis. I think about, yeah. I, I, I use it as a sort of metaphor for so many different things. But I'd never thought of chronic pain in terms of the hygiene hypothesis. Have you read Sarno's books about back pain? I haven't actually read them. I, they're on my list. There's many people who I've recommended them to. You know, um, yeah. they're, they're uh, so. They're all the same. Color. Yeah, I mean, just read one. There, are, you know, there's mind over back pain. Yeah. There's, you know, I, I remember, but they're they're all very thin, um, you know, maybe a hundred pages. And essentially, the argument is, you know, he was a an orthopedic surgeon, I think, or um, uh, and he did a lot of surgeries on on. Um, herniated discs right like everyone was yeah. coming in with herniated discs and back pain and and he started noticing after a while that there seemed to be like a lot of people came in with back pain who didn't have herniated discs or people came in with herniated discs who didn't have back pain and he was finding like wait a minute i thought there was this causative relationship but actually it seems like these are two separate things and basically his argument is that 
I think he says around 80% of people suffering from back pain are actually suffering from psychogenic um, issues. Yeah. Um, and the, the psychogenic issues, the reason it's so confusing for doctors is that when you, you're stressed out, you're unhappy, whatever's going on in your life expresses itself through your body, it will choose, it will flow like water flows, uh, it finds its natural pathway of least resistance. And so if you have a herniated disc, that's where the pain is likely to express. But that doesn't mean that the herniated disc is the cause of the pain. Cause of pain yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I ran across this idea through uh, the Z Health Group. They have this idea of the stress bucket, right? Like all stresses kind of sum up in the body. And then you can imagine there's a bucket and then a past injury or a present small deformation that isn't necessarily pain. It's just like the, the hole in the bucket that mm. is lowest. Right. And so as right. the stresses come up, once it finds a hole, it pours out through that. Right. But it's not the but the stress is the cause, not the hole. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I was talking with a friend last night. And she was talking about people who how the body doesn't know whether you're privileged or not. What she was trying to say is someone who's living a privileged existence, you know, what we would call first world problems, you know, like sure. that sort of dismissal, your body doesn't know, your body doesn't care. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you've got some high paid paying job, uh, and three kids and a relationship that has challenges and you're working, you know, 11 hours a day and you're not eating well, your body doesn't register that you're lucky in some ways to have those problems, right? Your body just yeah. experiences stress as stress. Yeah. And and that, that sort of relates to what you were saying in the sense that <clears throat> I feel like, you know, in the absence of actual pain, in the absence of bruising ourselves and tripping and falling and scraping our knees and all these things that little kids do, hopefully, uh, if mm -hmm. they're allowed to, in the absence of that, we suffer from whatever we can come up with. And it kind of feels the same with stress, right? Like, you know, people go off to war and they come back and they're like, what the hell are you people stressing about? You're not dealing with anything significant. And yet it feels like we find things to stress about no matter what, because as you say, those pathways need to be stimulated. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I've been, uh, that's my dryer going off. Sorry, <laughs> I'll go off in a sec. Um, I noticed this through my practice of martial arts and my practice of parkour, right? Yeah. That like getting punched in the face a few times just tends to turn the volume down <laughs> on the other stressors in life, right? Gets you a little perspective, yeah. Yeah, you know, go yeah. up on top of something high and jump to the other side and like feel that spike. And it's like everything else is sort of put into perspective a little bit. Mm. Um, the other thing I think, the thing that comes up to, for me around that topic is, I think, for one thing, suffering is suffering is an output of the brain in some sense, right? So we can say that objectively, X person is suffering more than Y person in the sense that you know, 
like maybe they're they're not getting food and they're you know and they're um, they're having to work backbreaking labor eighteen hours a day and the other person is you know getting social media mobbed while sitting in their plush office in Yale, right? And we might say, like, you <laughs> right. know, what is this person complaining about? That right. person is, is, like, really suffering. But the weird thing is that we don't really know. It's an internal state. Right. right? It, it has to do with our, our subjective experience, and people have different levels of sensitivity to negative emotion. And part of that, I think, has to do with the type of upbringing that we have and our exposure to these things. So you've probably read uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm, yeah. Right. One of the thesis in there is that some of the so right now, I think a lot about the paradox of the modern world. Right. I've been talking about this for you know at least twelve years or something like that. But in many ways, we live in the best time in history to live. Right. It's like if you want to have you know secure food, secure water, secure shelter, secure warmth. If you want to, you know, have a low likelihood of being assaulted, murdered, raped, like living in the West right now is the safest time in history. Um, and we have powers. We have magic powers, right? Having a smartphone like you and I are, are having a teleported conversation basically between, you know, a thousand miles. Um, like this should be amazing. And yet uh, people are suffering. Uh, in fact, you know, rates of, uh, of anxiety, depression, and suicide are all going up. They're going up rapidly uh, yeah. in some cases. And the, the other thing that people don't talk about is uh, the, the rate of pharmaceutical usage. Right? Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, everyone's okay. But if everyone has to take you know, Prozac to be okay, you actually have a huge problem and you've just, you've just buffered it, right? And the rate of prescription drug use in our country is absurd, right? I think it's one in five American women are using uh, or, or have some sort of prescribed psychiatric medication. Um, this, is, this is a signal of a very unhealthy system, right? And, you know, they, they identify a few things that are contributing to this trend, but one of them is a lack of unstructured play in childhood. Mm. And children are inherently driven to seek their edges right people tend to think that that child, children's play is sort of just laughing and giggling and running around and being silly and a lot of it is but it's also like going t and climbing something that you're absolutely terrified of right and then like getting to the point where you're completely you know pissing your pants terrified and feeling socially excluded because all the other kids climbed it and climbing down and feeling incredibly frustrated and upset with yourself and then doing it again yeah. and again, right, until you can get it. And they're driven to do those type of things. It's like, well, that's how you cultivate a character. That's how you cultivate the type of person that can handle things. So, um, you know, Nassim Taleb has this whole concept of anti-fragility, right? I love that concept, yeah. Yeah, anti-fragile things grow through stress, through appropriate stress, right? right. Um, and so, so what happens when we, when we take kids and we, we buffer them, shelter them from all the appropriate stressors, all the ancestrally normal stressors, until they're 18, 21, 25, 30 years old, right? Depending on the academic career that they go through. And then we take them out of an environment that is all about keeping them safe and we throw them into a workplace where it's all about how productive can they be? Um, and at any point, someone might throw a massive sort of, uh, 
you know, social media campaign to get your, your destroyed. And it's like, in some sense, their lives are, are completely unthreatened and they're the safest and most privileged people that have ever existed. And yet they're also maybe the least prepared people to deal with the stressors that they're experiencing. And that can actually be an extraordinarily profound driver of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I wonder to what extent that drives, you know, some of the more, um, embarrassing aspects of what's happening with like the safe space movements and the, you know, the extreme fragility of people who are offended by the slightest, you know, perceived insult. Um, you know, it seems ridiculous to someone, uh, my age, you know, having grown up sort of, you know, hearing sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And suddenly, you know, just, people are getting canceled and fired for nonsense. Um, I think about this all the time, like people who freak out when they get attacked on Twitter. And I'm yeah. thinking, why don't you just not log on to Twitter? Right? It's an imaginary yeah. world. No, Nobody's required to go there. You know, who gives a shit? You don't know those people. But Having grown up in that artificial world, that stuff matters. Just before we logged on, I was reading an article in The Atlantic, and the headline was something like, Have Smartphones Ruined a Generation? And it was about, it was a woman, uh, a researcher who looks at generational research, and she uh, was looking at how kids who grow up in the world of smartphones, exactly what you were saying, their suicide rates are way up. Um, and they're not even interested in in their own independence, you know, like when I was a kid and I assume when you were a kid, uh, you know, as soon as you could get your driver's license, you were down like, I, come on, yeah. freedom, you know, like, yeah, yeah. give me the keys, dad. Kids now they're like, nah, my parents drive me around. I don't I don't need to learn how to drive. <laughs> So I experienced this, right? So like I'm 39, I just turned 39. And so I'm technically part of the millennial generation, mm. but I feel like my parents just skipped the eighties. Like, <laughs> like they were from the seventies, like my parents were part of the counterculture. So I grew uh, up in the counterculture milieu, right? My older brother is four years older than me. He's classic Gen X. Right. And so I felt like, like I'm kind of in that, that borderline between Gen X and, and I have a lot more kind of common feeling with Gen X people. And so when I moved to Seattle, like I moved from a rural area to Seattle and all of a sudden, like all my peers who I was training with, like didn't have driver's license and didn't seem to be even interested in acquiring that. It was like, it's like, wait a minute. Like this is, this is road trips. This is freedom. This is like, this is independence. This is like making you know, out in the car. Like, yeah, you I, know, yeah, I grew up in the hippie community, so that wasn't a problem for me. But, you know, it was a problem for, for the, the previous generation, right? It's like, where are you going to go have sex, right? Wait, but, do you, do but, you, you have know. a yurt or something? A, a sex yurt in the backyard? <laughs> well, actually, literally, um, we have my dad. I, I was curious if you know about my dad. My name's name, my dad's name is Sunray Kelly. He's a, uh, he's a natural architect. You, you might be curious about his work. Yeah, he I'd built a, a yoga studio for my mom. And, uh, and he built a, uh, an addition to it made out of cob. And so he built a door, a portal, uh, that is shaped like a, a vagina and is bright pink. 
beautiful. So, <laughs> you can go check it out uh, for anyone who wants to look it up. Look up Sunray Kelly. So, um, yeah, definitely. Well, so, so, I mean, my my you know my my environment was was pretty permissive about that kind of stuff. Like I right. I was a late developer in that way, but you know, uh, my brother when he was sixteen years old. He he moved himself. He basically built a house in a bus on the property, and moved himself into the house so he could bring his girlfriends over, um, and that was that was considered totally acceptable in the environment that I grew up in. Cool, but uh, yeah, but you know now kids aren't even kids have enough porn they don't even care right. Yeah. <laughs> like if you look at rates of, of teen sexuality, they're massively down. Yeah, it's like the, yeah. the drives these natural drives that we have to grow ourselves. And to produce independence, it's like something is inhibiting them or, or taking the space of them. And, you know, you're talking about Twitter and Twitter's not the real world, but in some ways it's more real than the real world for people, especially people who haven't been out there and been physical because, because there's an algorithm designed to, to capture your attention and to manipulate your neurohormonal system to make it as addictive as possible. And I think that's, um, I think that's producing impacts that are uh, like this is a tangent in some way, but I I think that we're facing existential threat to humanity because of social media. Like, are you I'm sure you're probably familiar with the paperclip problem, right? No. In in thinking about artificial intelligence, there's this classic parable of the paperclip, right? If you if you were designing a sufficiently powerful artificial intelligence that had as its primary function or its primary sort of axiom that producing more paper clips is good. Oh, it, it, it would became exhaust the planet. To, it would destroy everything right. to, to achieve, yeah. to achieve paper clips. Right. Yeah. And, and so everyone's afraid of the singularity, which is the idea that like you'll have this artificial general intelligence, which will, uh, it will become self-aware and once it becomes self-aware it will have the capacity to exponentially increase its own intelligence and power and then essentially we will have given birth to god and that god can do with us whatever it wants and if it's even the slightest bit malaligned with human well-being it will be the most uh most oppressive thing that has ever existed right that's the idea and so you, you hear all these people who are worried about that and the reality is I think that's sort of already happened, right? The, the algorithms that run Twitter and Facebook and uh, Google and YouTube, they're not artificial general intelligences, but they're so much more sophisticated than we understand. That the thing that we've created is so far outside of our own capacity to understand, and, it, and it, it's a classic malalignment problem. The whole purpose of those algorithms is to increase the time that you spend on those sites. Yeah. And the way to do that is to hook into your neurohormonal reward system and to create an addictive response in the same way that cocaine or heroin or anything else does. And and it turns out that the most powerful way to do that is to manipulate the negative emotional um, aspect of you because negative emotion has more is more powerful than positive emotion. So if I can if if I can make you see more things that make you feel self-righteous about your political side and more things that piss you off about the other political side, you're going to spend more time on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. And, and so 
it's producing this I think it's not the only reason but I think it's a massive reason why we see this insane polarization of our political spectrum and and not just polarization it's like the the ideas on each side are getting increasingly crazy right like there's there's mature there's a mature and intelligent amazing ideas on the left and I think so on the right as well and then there's right like words are violence and destroying property is not violence right and the entire world is run by lizard men pedophiles who uh who are all hanging out on epstein's island and anyone who i disagree with is is basically controlled by the lizard men pedophiles right yeah like these aren't these aren't serious political positions these aren't there's no you know but more and more people are sort of falling into being non-player character parroters of these ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because of the power of social media. Like we don't realize that when we're on Twitter, we're essentially mainlining cocaine, uh, a cocaine that's designed to control our brain in order to get us to produce stupid politics. <laughs> that's the- yeah. Well, I, I agree with you. And I, I think it goes deeper than social media. Uh, I've been arguing for a long time that the same thing you just argued, that that it's useless to worry about the singularity because it's already happened. Similarly, it's it's useless. Well, not useless, but it's sort of uh, the timing is wrong to worry about, um, you know, aliens coming from another planet or something and enslaving us because what's happened is we have created aliens uh, that have already enslaved us and they're called corporations and religions institutions and um you know we've got corporations that have legal rights of personhood and yet they can disappear at the stroke of a pen we talk about you know apple wants this and google believes this and tesla is trying to do that as if they're living things which mm-hmm. you know and and then i i go into this whole argument of how each successive form of life is made of simpler forms of life that Mm -hmm. combine, you know, like single celled organisms combine to become multicellular organisms and then parasites like mitochondria enter those and they become incorporated into a more complex organism and so on. And why do we assume that we're the end of that line, right? Like what organisms have we combined into to form right and i think it's institutions and and the misalignment is that the institutions are driven by profit and capital accumulation and they don't give a shit if that means fishing the oceans into oblivion or dumping poisons into the aquifer you know it's like those are human concerns yeah they it's not it's uh yeah, the, the game theory stability of that game is, you know, the, the strategy is to externalize costs. Right. And and, and I agree with you. I've, I've, I think that capitalism, I think capitalism, I, I think it's hard to get the nuance right with capitalism because I think capitalism captures a lot of beautiful things about liberty and about the way that people can interact with each other. And it has derivatives that have been enormously beneficial to us right over the last say uh you know 
20 years, more people have been li lifted out of poverty than in, you know all of human history up to this point. Uh, uh, maybe it's not 20 years, but it's something like that. We, you know, there's fewer people living in extreme poverty. We have, you know, we have modern medicine, antibiotics, all these things. And yet at the same time, it's a classic paperclip problem because capitalism is a system that runs to increase the production of capital. And capital is actually not perfectly aligned with human well-being. And it's certainly not aligned with the well-being of all the other living things on the planet. Right. Or, or so, us, you know, as, yeah. as, as we've yeah. been discussing, there's a reason that kids aren't going outside and playing, Absolutely. right? And, and a because, lot of that is this system. Well, well, because it's uncapturable, right? So the bene so you, let's say there's a bunch of kids in a neighborhood like you grew up with probably, right? And those kids go out and they play all day and they build forts and they do all this amazing stuff. And they're, they're stronger human beings. They have better social intelligence. They're more coordinated. Their immune systems are better. Their pain uh, systems are better. And they come home. And all of that is completely invisible to the capitalist system. Right. Right. But if they buy Mirror's Edge, if they buy Assassin's Creed and they sit down and play that, now the, they've become part of the production of capital. And so whether we like it or not, in some sense, the system that we've bought into, if we buy into it completely and don't realize that it, you know, I think capitalism is a great, is a great subsystem to have in your, your societal package. But when it becomes the God, yeah. it's not very healthy for us. Right. right. And I think that in lieu of other gods, for many people, capitalism is the God. Like, I think that is the, you know, a lot of classical conservative thought over, say, the last, you know, the, the, the I would say, like mid-century America to, you know, the end of the aughts is like, it's basically, you know, God as capital, Right. You know, capital is God, and then we'll align ourselves with evangelicals because, you know, they're willing to align themselves with us. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't think we were going to get into a deep uh, political conversation, uh, but yeah, we we can do that. I'm all over the place. Yeah, we can yeah. go back to movement. We can go back to the hunter forgers. Whatever you're well, interested in. I, I'd like to go back to your to your parents a little bit. Tell me more about sure. about the way you grew up. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about this conversation because, like, you know, I, I don't think you and I are going to be perfectly aligned on politics and on, on some of the, the way that we, we look at sort of the hunter-forager past. But I think that can be a really interesting dynamic. And I think part of the reason that we, you know, we might have a sort of difference there is because of the, where, the way that I grew up. Because I did grow up in the counterculture, right? So, so... You know, I see you as a critic of Western civilization and, and you know, the what um, Jordan Hall calls game A, right? And I'm also a critic of game A, but I'm also a big critic of the counterculture because I grew up in it, right? And so um, my dad, uh, my dad, my dad was like a bomb Russia Republican, like, you know, hardcore conservative growing up. He was all state wrestler, and he, you know, uh, was three-time uh, MVP of his college football team here in Bellingham. And he got together with some friends, and he went into a field um, out in the woods and dropped acid. And when he came back, he was not the same human being. Right? Uh, Ray Kelly walked into that field, and Sun Ray walked out of that field. Mm. And so he stopped eating meat. He 
uh, stopped playing football, dropped out of his program, started, you know, designing buildings that nobody in the world would design, like total crazy, you know, people who come to the property I grew up on say it looks like, you know, Middle Earth or, you know, Dagobah or something that, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Who's the guy from Labyrinth? Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Not not Jim Henson, the other guy uh, who does all that. Brian Froud. Right? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, so I got to grow up in that. And then um, and my mom had, had come into that. And there's a whole community of, of counterculture people who, who grew up, uh, who kind of came to the Northwest in the Skagit Valley. So we, we got all our food from the Skagit Valley Food Co-op. And when I was little, we went to... Uh, the barter fair and the rainbow gathering and the Oregon country fair, like year after year. Right. When I was six years old, <laughs> when I was six years old, um, my parents uh, took me out of school, uh, took me out of first grade, and we toured the country in a in a bus that my dad had taken a school bus and chopped the back end off and dropped a VW bus on top of it and made a house like a, a like a, a loft out of it. Wow. And so we, we drove around the country in this, and we, we were gone. Eventually, we went to Nevada to be part of a protest against nuclear weapons testing on a Native American reservation. And so my dad was there, you know, covering himself in mud, and like, so the police wouldn't want to put him in their police cars and like walking through. So I grew up in that environment. Right. And. So I think of myself as like a hippie apostate, right? Like, mm. like I'm like a, a Jewish person who grew up in synagogue but doesn't go anymore. Right. Um, and and I think that I think that there was that there was a lot of insight in the counterculture and the realization that that what kind of Western culture had evolved into in that at that point was machine-like and deeply unsatisfying, and the role of women was you know, absurd and totally unsatisfying. And so they, they ripped their, they sort of like ripped their culture down to the studs and tried to rebuild it. And I think that, um, that that freedom allowed a lot of dysfunction to arise. And so there was a lot of brilliance, but there was a lot of, a lot of, of, of horrific behavior and people excusing their, their behavior based off of their, you know, their attempts at spirituality and a lot of abusive substances in an unintelligent way. Yeah. And so I grew up and defaulted out of that. And, you know, you know, I have short hair and I don't smoke weed and I, uh, you know, I'm monogamously married and have been since I was 20 or I've been with my wife since I was 21. Um, but sorry, this is a long rant, but I think this is interesting because I, I encounter Jordan Peterson. I think a lot of young people in my generation who encounter him and the idea that there's something really brilliant about Western culture that we need to understand. Um, uh, that idea really resonated with me. And I, and I was processing that and I was thinking about that. And then I had this, you know, he has this analogy of like rescuing your father from the underworld. Right? The bones of past civilizations are what we need to build on because because otherwise we don't have anything to build off of. But at the other hand, like you always have to build it new because what's passed down to you comes from the dead. 
And so I had this idea, okay, I have to recover my father from the underworld. Well, that my father is Western civilization and Christianity. But then I also had this realization that like my father's also the counterculture and my father's mm -hmm. my actual father and his reaction to what happened in the world before him. And uh, so I think that's an interesting, an interesting place to, to sort of play with is the counterculture happens for a reason and there's a lot to learn from it. Um, but also all of Western civilization happened for a reason too. And, you know, there's some wisdom to Chesterton's fence in my opinion. To Chesterton's fence? Fence. Are you familiar with Chesterton's fence? No. You're talking about G.K. Chesterton? Yeah, G.K. Yeah. Chesterton. No, G. what's K. his... Chesterton's famous, you know, um, conservative uh, philosopher, right? And he said that, you know, the basic difference between a, uh, a liberal and a conservative is that if you walk through, you know, if you're walking through the woods and you see a, uh, a wall and you have no idea why the wall is there... Um, the liberals' idea is, well, we should get rid of the wall because it's it's limiting us, right? And his thing is, well, if you don't know why the wall's there, you don't get to get rid of it yet, right? You have to figure out what its function is mm. before you can take it apart. And mm. so the conservative tendency is to look at the structures that have pre-existed us and see them as holding back the chaos, the chaotic potential of being. Um, and I think that's true. And then the, the progressive tendency is to look at the walls that are, uh, that are around us and say, those are oppressing us and limiting us and causing us to be stagnant. And I also think that's true. Um, and it's, you know, wisdom lies in somehow figuring out how we, we thread that needle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that in, in terms of what's happening historically in the United States now, it, it seems like we may be entering into sort of a reverberation of a counterculture, but having learned from the mistakes of the previous countercultural movement, hopefully, um, because I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I am not comfortable in, in large groups of self-proclaimed enlightened hippies. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to Burning Man once and I left three days early because it yeah. just seemed like a bunch of, um, ego. Uh, I mean, there was some beautiful art there and some 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 inspiring things to see and experience. But you know, the idea of being with fifty thousand hippies in a dusty desert, taking psychedelics and playing bad music very very loudly just doesn't appeal to me. So uh, <laughs> we we might have more common ground than you think. I. I got to teach at Envision Festival a couple of years ago, mm. and it was really interesting because I grew up, I grew up, um, I grew up, you know, at, at the Oregon Country Fair, and I had a perception of like what that kind of cultural milieu looked like. And so then I go into Envision Festival in 2018 or 2019, whenever it was, and like there, there's still lots of use of psychedelics, and people kind of dress the same, and still the same kind of food being served. But then the music's all EDM music, which was I, not a fan of. Um, and it was very strange. It's like because hippies were always about back to nature. Yeah. And then the idea of like electronic music as the fundamental music of it is fair. I don't know. Somehow that doesn't make sense to me. And yeah. then the other thing that was really interesting about it was that there was all these presentations about entrepreneurialism. Right? There was all this like build your business, grow your business. And it was like the hippies that I grew up around were like so anti-capitalist. And the new hippiedom is like hyper-capitalist. It's really yeah. strange to me. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, do you know Jamie Wheel? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I just uh, corresponded with him. I've never met him in person, but he's yeah. got a book coming out that uh, he was consulting. We were talking about a little oh, bit cool. about about tantric sex or something like that. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, you know, he wrote that book with Stephen Collar, Catching Fire, right. which is all about like how we can utilize the tools that they're using a Burning Man and Vision to kind of grow as human beings and like move society in a really positive direction. But then he did this interview with Rebel Wisdom where he was basically like, when I look at the the psychedelic revolution now, like it's mostly state seeking, right? It's it's not it's not it's not really the tool, you know, a friend of mine described psychedelics as like a, a trampoline and we need a ladder, right? So you can you get to see something. <laughs> That's you get an to come right back point. Down. Yeah, well, that you know, a lot of um, the sort of the people I respect most in that movement have described it similarly. Where, you know, uh, Alan Watts, for example, he didn't talk about trampolines, but he did talk about you get a glimpse of something. You get a, it's kind of like you get you fly over the mountaintop in an airplane, and then later you go and you climb it. You know, if, if that's where you want to be, you've seen it. Now you got to do the work to get your ass up there. Um, yeah, I, I, for me personally, psychedelics have been very useful, but um, I was just talking with someone about this recently. I forget who it was, some, someone who was a guest on the podcast. But anyway, they, it, there's a conundrum for me because I've, I've often felt, you know, when I was younger and taking psychedelics and aware of the fact that I could go to prison for the rest of my life if I got caught with... Mm-hmm. these mushrooms in my pocket or this acid in my you know backpack or whatever um you know i sort of yearned for uh to live in a society in which the potential the positive potential was acknowledged and accepted and uh, clinical use was permitted and research was permitted and it just seemed incredibly unjust to me that the society was oriented the way it was so violently against them um, but now that they are being accepted, I find myself um, sort of really concerned about the casualness with which they're being used and the um, commodification and cheapening and packaging of instant wisdom, you know, all this kind of like do an ayahuasca ceremony this weekend in Joshua Tree and you know you'll see the secrets of the universe it only costs five thousand dollars like <laughs> fuck all that you know yeah I mean it, it's all been sort of commodified and sucked into the system and spat out in these cheap plastic packages and and so I don't know how to negotiate the space between those things you know um, because I think that trampoline can be really important for people because, you know, you can if you bounce hard enough, you get up above the tree line and you can see there's a whole world out there. That's not what you would have thought, you know, but you're right. You have to then get off the trampoline and and, um, yeah. you know, act on whatever insight you may have had. And as Huxley said, when you hear the message, hang up the phone. So these people are like, I've done 7,000 ayahuasca trips. Like, dude, you know, the last 6,995 were a waste of time, you know? 
Yeah, that's interesting. So I have a sense that a lot of the people that I grew up around who are using these substances regularly, they don't seem connected to reality. And that's that's one of the yeah. reasons why, having grown up in that community, I really uh, steered away from them, right? Like I, uh, the only substances I'd used until I was 37 were, uh, were caffeine and alcohol, right? And I've never been drunk. Um, and I tried marijuana like five times in uh, you know, the spring of that year and then was over it. It just didn't do anything for me and just tried, tried mushrooms. But uh, what's, what's interesting is that I have a friend, Simon Thacker, whose work is extremely parallel to mine, right? Like he teaches about natural movement. He takes people into the woods. Like our, our, the way that we teach and the concepts that we teach with are so deeply in parallel. And his story about how he came to it is that he was tripping on mushrooms in the woods and he realized that he was a worm at the deepest level of himself, right? That he was a, a tube with a mouth on one end and an anus on the other. <laughs> and that, that, that consumatory tube was, was, was doing its thing, right? And that nature had been kind of unchanged, right? Uh, and then he tripped again and he was like, oh, here's my fish body. Here's how I'm connected to a fish. And I trip again and here's my monkey body, right? right? And then he goes around the world and studies capoeira and he studies kung fu and he studies meditation in... in uh, in, in India and Southeast Asia and China and China, Chinese martial arts and comes back. But the thing is he comes back and then he studies neurobiology and psychology and ecology and anthropology at university in order to try to understand like from a solid scientific epistemology how to slot all these things in. And there was all these people with him who were doing drugs, who were having visions when they were 18 years old who just went to have jobs, right? Right. They didn't. They didn't take. They didn't build on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked him yeah. once, like, you know, should I try these things? And he said, Well, you've done. You're doing all the things that you would have been told to do mm. if you went down that path, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And and it's interesting, like how you frame yourself as an apostate, and yet there are clearly <laughs> there are clearly currents running through your life. I don't know if your parents are alive, but that they must be proud of you, that they must see that in some ways your life is a returning to primordial truths that your father was also looking for or trying to align with in a very different way, right? But there is some commonality in what you're doing. You're very unconventional in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I made that realization at some point that like, despite my like you know i had a really hard time with my dad like people ask me all the time oh it must be amazing to be sunray son i was like no (laughs) right he's a shit dad like i love my dad now and we have a wonderful relationship and i and i admire him and i think his work needs to be forwarded in the world um but as a kid it was hard right uh and and so a lot of my kind of journey was sort of rejecting the identity that i'd grown up with like you know I'm not into free love. I'm not into drugs. I'm not into this. I'm not into that. You know, um, and and then I started teaching parkour, right? And then I got interested in taking parkour into nature. And then all of a sudden, I'm like teaching these retreats and taking people into nature, and they're telling me that like they're having spiritual experiences from it. I'm like, I don't even know what that words mean. So like, don't put that on me, please. But uh, but I was like, wait, this looks a lot like my dad, right? Like it, if you look at the way that my dad looks at architecture and the way he puts trees in houses you know mm. you're like oh well i grew up to 
move through trees. So there, there's definitely a commonality there, and yeah. I so so I, I grew up, you know, like I said, counterculture. I you know became sort of a standard leftist, but like secular humanist, hardline atheist, super scientific in my twenties, and then as I entered my thirties, like there were holes in that. And I went like all the way as deep into like super right wing as you could get in a lot of ways. And then I encountered Jordan Peterson and it was like, well, actually they've got a point. The people who I disagree with have a point. <laughs> right. And being stuck in, in either camp is, is limiting. And then I encountered Ken Wilber and the whole integral philosophy idea. Right. And so the, the ultimate goal here is to be able to, to transcend the, the perspective and integrate it, right? So, like, I, I was curious when you're talking about drugs, right? And the, the sort of, there's something powerful. There's something that we need, like, like having a complete sort of closure to the psychedelic world. Like, you see that as a, as a boundary around society that's limiting us in ways that we need to not be limited. Would you agree with that? Uh, I wasn't clear. The, I see what? The enclosure? So, so you, you said you, don't, you didn't want to live in a world where, where, not, where we're using ketamine and, and uh, LSD and mushrooms is like potentially punishable by life in prison, right? That, that yeah. was a level of, of like, of, that was a fence that was way too strict and needed to be torn down a little bit. Yeah. And now it's been torn down and, uh, and, and what's coming up out of it is, is maybe more chaotic and more, um, and, and less mature and, and less sort of fording of the values that you saw in it than, than you might've imagined it would be. Is that accurate? Um, well, yeah, that's not quite the way I would frame it. I, I mean, I, th I think what I was more concerned with is the injustice of, or the, the, the sort of disconnect between the experience of, of taking psilocybin mushrooms, which grow naturally, and yeah. sitting in a field and going, oh my God, everything's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I've never looked at a, a flower this deeply in my life. I've never experienced color saturation like in my cells. You know, I'm so fucking happy to be alive and so grateful for this experience, which is kind of a typical psychedelic experience. And ha and living in a society that says, "Oh, you did that. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a cage." Yeah. To me, that's like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, and then like you, you know, I heard you talk about how when you were a kid, you got really interested in anthropology and you found someone who made his, his library available to you. And you just started reading all these manuscripts and and books about other societies and how other people experience reality. Um, you know, I it wasn't long till I realized that every society that had access to these substances saw them as the greatest gift of the gods, including the ancient Greeks, right, with the Eleusian mysteries. Um, uh, and we see them as a reason to take away someone's life. You know, the, the penalty, the criminal the minimum mandatory sentencing for uh, LSD possession uh, for distribution is higher than second degree murder in most states. 
So that's what blew my mind. It's like, how, yeah. how can that be? What What are you so afraid of? Yeah. Um, you know, and so that uh, fueled and, and sort of illuminated a lot of my distrust and skepticism toward Western civilization. Because like, wait a minute, how can an experience that's so benign and and beautiful and life affirming be so criminalized? Why is the state so fucking afraid of this? So yeah. I think that that's what I was, you know, so I was like, the state needs to back the fuck off and let people have these experiences. It's nobody's business what I put into my body, which is sort of a libertarian perspective, I guess, and mm -hmm. in that area. Um, but yeah, obviously, uh, you know, part of what I don't like about the Western, you know, the state of Western civilization is that everything gets commodified. Yeah. You know, and desacralized. There, there's a book called In the Absence of the Sacred that I read years ago, and I just love the title sticks in my head. It's this, you know, like you were saying how kids going outside and building forts and playing and running around doesn't feed into capitalism and capitalism yeah. wants everything to be a product and to, you know, involve the exchange of money. Um, and I feel like it does that with the sacred, right? We, we don't have, you know, we have mega churches now, right? It's like everything's, you know, televangelism. Everything has to become part of the, the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's my disappointment that I see that happening so much now, especially, you know, in the worlds that you and I sort of move through the whole sort of biohacker, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, finding new ways, more efficient ways to, you know, the optimization, human total optimization, like all, everything's yeah. a fucking product. And why can't we just chill the fuck out and enjoy our lives? You know, why does everything have to be, you know, take it to the max all the time and, and, you know, monetize it i'm fucking ranting you got me ranting what <laughs> means we're we're into something rich right um i was listening to your interview with charles eisenstein before uh last night so that i could kind of get a sense for you as an interviewer oh jeez. <laughs> that that was a an interesting choice that, that was at big sur down at esalen yeah yeah oh there you go yeah nice cultural sort of you know center of, of a lot of these things yeah um it, it's i think you know we're wrestling with something similar which is or, or at least the way that i tend to look at it is I don't think we can get outside of the West and what it's produced and scientific epistemology and all these things. We can't, it, it delivers too many things that we need, especially, you know, if it's a world of, of 9 billion people. Um, and, I, and I'm not as certain as you are that, that the world that existed before civilization was something that we would really want to go back to. Like, I think there's things about it that we really, really need and that we need to be in conversation with. Um, but, it, but so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in this place of like, how do we integrate the capitalist system? How do we integrate Christianity? How do we integrate those values and what, where they really deliver and then recognize that 
there are places that they weren't delivering, and there are places that are that there that we may in fact be running a, you know, uh, what's the term? Uh, Jordan Hall uses it all the time, but it, but it basically, or Daniel Schmachtenberg, it's like we're running a uh, a, a strategy that run, ends in self destruction, right? Like you 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 can't play a game where your goal is to beat the other guy no matter what the cost when everybody has a nuclear weapons. If you, yeah. if you keep playing that game, you all die. Have you ever read a book called Finite and Infinite Games? You know, I haven't. I, it's it's something I need to read. Like a million people have recommended it to me. Dude. I use the concepts, but I haven't gotten into it yet. <laughs> exactly. I, it's such a great book, and it's it's you'll read it in like an hour and a half. It's, yeah. it's, it's l- l- like little bite-sized chapters of two or three paragraphs and each one just takes the concept and flushes it out a little more but the basic idea is that you can look at almost all human interactions as games and there are two types of games there's a finite game where you you know you're playing on a, a demarcated field of play and you know who's on which team and everyone has a position and it's, you know, like American football, you know, it's yeah. like somebody's got to win, you know. Mm-hmm. And then infinite games are where the purpose of the game is to keep playing. Yeah. So, you know, marriage is an infinite game. You don't want to win. If you win <laughs> at marriage, you've lost, right? Yeah. Um, Winning at marriage is a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to tell. The, the set difference. is over and I got more out of it than you did. Yeah, ha ha. I win. I'm alone. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, no. that would be a, a good book for you to read because you obviously are already yeah. thinking in those terms. Yeah, I mean, the term in game theory we talk about zero. They talk about zero sum versus positive sum games, right? Right. And, you know, I, like I've run into these same ideas in lots of different places, right? And like Yak Pengsep talks a lot. Uh, not Yak Pengsep, sorry, Jean Piaget, which I encountered through Peterson, right? Mm. So Peterson has this idea that, you know, when you're playing American football, it's fine to play American football, but you focus on being a good sportsman because the real game isn't American football. The real game is the metagame across all these games. And the winner of the metagame is the person who plays in such a way that everyone wants to play with them. Mm. Right? So you, you American football is can be the game, and if you think it's the game, then you've missed the point. But if you realize it's a training for the metagame, where you have that iterated state that's replicable across time, then then something then then it can be something really powerful, a place to learn from. And uh, so this is one of the places where, yeah, I again I'm I'm coming at this state of like how do we integrate the the value like let's say you know there there are zero sum there are zero sum elements to capitalism but capitalism also is super positive some in a certain way right like everyone's gotten richer except you, you know you, you said that before and i didn't want to like i don't sure. want to pull That's you into my my uh swamp intellectually mm-hmm. but those statements are very suspect okay um so? you know that before you said that uh, more people have been pulled out of poverty in the last 20 years okay a lot of what that is is kids who were playing in outside building forts are now pulled into the economy that looks like a lack of poverty so you what's happened in many parts of africa south america and asia in the last 25 years or so is that many many millions of people who were living in 
self-sustaining villages have been kicked off their land and forced into um, the consumerist society. So people who were not making any money, who were not paying any taxes, who were not part of the moneyed economy, have been drawn into that economy. And to, from an economic perspective, it looks like those people were pulled out of poverty. But what they, the reality of the situation is they were driven out of villages where they were running around drinking water from the river and climbing trees and having the kind of life that you and I are celebrating in some ways into urban slums. And from a purely economic perspective, people like Steven Pinker are saying, oh, look, they've all been pulled out of poverty. That's a very limited view of what's happened. So those yeah. numbers are, are suspect sure. at best. No, I think it's a fair point. Like, I think, you know, the there's probably some nuance to where that lands. Uh, but I sure. think, you know, I don't, uh, my my reaction to your, your point is like, yeah, I bet that's true in a lot of ways, right? I, in your conversation with Charles Eisenstein, you were talking about your experience of Spain, right? Mm. And I recently got to teach a seminar in Andalusia, right? In, uh, in this, what was the name of the town? Uh, I think it was called Facinas. It was outside of uh, Algeciras, right? And um, it, it really struck me because there was this sense of place and authenticity and tradition there that I'd never really experienced anywhere else. And I've traveled quite a bit, but there's something about that particular place that was really unique. And, you know, if you look at economic metrics of how southern Spain is supposedly doing, it looks pretty poor, right? Right? Yeah. But I've been to Barcelona, which is the economic engine of Spain, and I didn't particularly enjoy it. Yeah. And I've been to this place, which is a town of 900 people. And what's really interesting about that town is that the town is composed entirely of families who, who have children who are, you know, basically 30 and under. And people who are 60 and over, right? It's like an entire generation of these people basically defaulted on the life that they'd lived and went to the cities. And then their kids probably were visiting their grandparents and realized that, like, city life was not actually better. Right? Yeah. And so the people who chose to come back are the people who, who saw some value in that. And they had enough connection when they came back to sort of keep it going. And so my friend Neil Hill, he, he's like... He, he has guys there who are, you know, in their 80s who are still working, who've been doing the same thing that, that, that has been done there for probably 2,000 years, where they gather cork out of the cork oaks mm -hmm. to sell to the market, and they raise pigs, and they raise cattle, and they make, they make she sheep's milk, you know, cheese. And the life seems to be sustainable at the rate that they're doing it. And they work like four hours a day. <laughs> Like at least at an office, right? They, you know, the, the expectation is like arrive at ten, take a long siesta, you know, yeah, kick off for dinner at six. Um, so, so I, you know, I think there's some truth to the idea that that there are that there are efficiencies to markets that deliver deliver a lot of things that we want, and then there's also truth to the idea that that markets externalize costs to people who are invisible to us and um, and dr drive us away from things that are actually often way more pertinent to our well-being than the productions of capital. Yeah. Um, and yeah, 
that's you know, we could you know you and I could probably geek out about that for a long time but uh, but uh, yeah I think it's an interesting thing to to try to sort of I think the pinker perspective is is naive in certain ways but I also think say the Daniel Quinn perspective is is naive and there's somewhere in between that we have to get because because I don't think capitalism is going away um, but I think that if it goes as it is going, it's destructive. Well, the it problem is, you know, as you were saying earlier, uh, for many people, capital takes the place of God and becomes this yeah. sort of unquestionable truth. Um, and I think that that's what's happened in the United States. You know, corporations and corporate power have um, captured political power to the extent where there's really no... Uh, give and take between collective control of the scene and and um, you know like in in Scandinavian countries, you know Denmark is a capitalist country, yeah. But with a lot of uh, governmental control of you know keeping everybody on a level playing ground, and they're actually doing much better than the United States is in economic terms. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, there's a sort of misinformation that only unfettered capitalism can uh, can function smoothly. It's not unfettered at all, right? It's 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 fettered to the interests of corporations. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's something yeah. you said earlier that I want to dig into because it's really interesting um, to me. I I've been I've been reading Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. Uh, uh, that's Abram. yeah. I've re I read that a long time ago. Like yeah. Yeah, interesting book. So I've been reading that, and then I was reading a book called What the Robin Knows by John Young, and then I'm having regular conversations with John Ravakey, and like all these ideas sort of melted in my head, and I've struggled a lot with the idea of spirituality, right? And you know, a lot of people in these let's talk about spirituality all the time. And, um, one of the ideas that Ravakey proposes is that the way that we're conceiving of this is very specific and Western. It comes from essentially the the conflict between the rediscovery of Aristotelian science in the you know the Middle Ages and the dogma of the church. And Thomas Aquinas basically splits the world between the natural and the supernatural, but that's not the way that hunter foragers view the world. That's not the way that early Christians viewed the world. Right? The, 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 there wasn't a material world that was fallen and a spiritual world that was true. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's, there's elements of that that go all the way back to Plato and the analogy of the cave. But it really sort of crystallizes there and then it goes into Descartes and the whole idea of, you know, I think, therefore I am. The only aspect of, of existence that is not essentially a mechanical clockwork is human thought. And that's the way that Descartes sort of splits the world. Um, and, and so a lot of times when people talk about spirituality, they're talking about some sort of causal factor that exists outside of the material world. And, and then it becomes a way of sort of waving your hand and saying things can be a certain way, the way that I like. Right. And it, you know, the classic one is the secret, right? Like if you, if you imagine it, you can manifest it. And there's actually truth to the secret because when you change the way that you're looking at the world, what, what you recognize in the world will change, right? The world didn't change, but what you can see in the world changed. Yeah. Um, and so we, so, but, but that, I mean, the secret is like that, that's new age spirituality to me. It's, it's that commodified capitalist spirituality in a way. And so I was, 
so there's something about that bifurcation that I'm not comfortable with. And I was trying to think about it, but David Abrams talks about the idea, or David Abram talks about the idea that we we view the world inherently from a sensory perspective animistically. We view the world as filled with causal agents. Mm. Everything that we interact with is is causal. That's how a hunter forager views the world, that's how a child views the world. And in some sense it's how we view the world until we layer on these other things. Right? And that's the base perspective. And and I was thinking about that and then I was thinking about um about uh, John Young in, the, in his book describes how essentially the natural world is always giving you information that that you can tune into. So the birds are all singing and the birds' songs are telling you whether there's predators in the area, right? What kind of predator they are, where the predator might be. And so I realized that that you can imagine that each bird is is like a neuron in a brain. And they're all, so there's a big neural net and that neural net is actually speaking to you, right? Or it is speaking in such a way that you can listen to it. And so then it's actually, so then a hunter forager who says the spirit of the birds, he's actually describing something that's a, a realistic material thing. There is actually a net we intelligence of the birds that's expressing itself in there that you can tune into if you have the right sensitivities. Um, and, and so when you talked about, you know, Apple, right? It was like, well, Apple is a, is a networked intelligence, right? And it's a networked intelligence that, that we don't understand precisely. And so, uh, that reminded me of like the old Christian idea of like powers and principalities. Like we think that we exist in this world you know, say a bunch of just solely human agents, but there are actually powers and principalities above us that are, you know, intelligences that are operating. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that, that's a, a, an interesting thing, way to think about spirituality. And if we don't respect that, that capacity, um, perhaps that's very misleading too. So are you saying we should be praying to Apple? Is that what you're <laughs> I don't know if prayer is the right way to communicate with the God of Apple, but uh, but I do think that 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 <laughs> Apple is like a God, right? Yeah, it is like it is like a spirit that exists within our world that has extraordinary power. Yeah, and is intangible, right? You yeah. can't you can't like shoot Apple, right? You can't no. assassinate <laughs> Apple. It can't happen. Yeah, invisible and yet omnipresent at the same time. And governs our lives. Yeah. So, dude, this has been really interesting. I thought I was going to be spending an hour talking about um, squats and uh, <laughs> slack lines and climbing trees, not, you know, Aristotle yeah. and, uh, you know, alternative architecture. This is uh, very surprising. Um, yeah. I've enjoyed this. Thank you. I, I've, really uh, this too. I'd like to hang out sometime, maybe yeah, uh, roll through Bellingham in the van. You know, I live in a van half the year. Do you uh, know that? I did not know that, but I, I, I caught wind of it slightly in preparing for this interview. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson. She's, <laughs> she must be very attractive. She is. She's <laughs> beautiful. She's beautiful. Uh, 
Yeah, she's uh, no. I uh, spent at least four or five months every year for the last four years, five years maybe, mm-hmm. um, up in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, up into Canada nice. when they'll when yeah. they'll have me. Um, yeah. yeah, and you know, and one of the the reasons that I love doing that so much is that it it brings me into a more primordial kind of existence. You know, I'm sitting by a fire every night. I'm jumping in rivers instead of hot showers. I'm chopping wood. I'm, uh, you know, unpacking things and cooking outside and, and responding to changes in the weather. And, you know, it it's sort of, uh, it's, I recognize the 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 rejuvenation and the the power of you know even to the extent that those activities require some sort of more primitive movement patterns I'm not sitting behind a desk yeah. you know stumbling to a shower and you know uh, I'm burying my shit in the woods a lot you know there it I love that stuff I I like feeling like an animal and moving like an animal to the extent that that's possible. Um, are there, you know, like one of the things that we do is we have a slack line. So we put that up between trees. A guy who listens to my podcast, sent it to me. And, you know, so I've been yeah, learning that. That's awesome. um, I just, do you know who Lloyd Kahn is by any chance? I feel like he and your dad probably know <laughs> yeah, each yeah. other. Lloyd Kahn wrote a book called uh, Builders of the Pacific Northwest. My dad's yeah. uh, very prominently featured in that. All right. I've got that book in my living room because okay. Lloyd gave it to me. Look up Sunday um, Kelly in there. No, but you should, you should meet Lloyd. He's a really cool guy. And uh, he wrote a book called or published a book called Stretching that okay. is like his biggest bestseller. He has a small publishing uh, company, like in-house publishing company. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very much into movement. He's in his 80s at this point, but he surfs. Uh, he's got an e-bike. He climbs trees. He jumps from rock to rock. He's very much into natural movement, and uh, and he's an excellent example of somebody who's in his 80s, and he moves. He's more limber than I am, for sure, and than a lot of people in their 40s. Uh, but I just... Uh, on his Instagram the other day, he was on this, uh, I think it's called a, what's got a balance board or something. It's a yeah. board with like a tube in the middle and you know, mm-hmm. you're, um, I just ordered it. It's, it's arriving today. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was like, what kind of advice do you have for people? Yeah, you know, I just turned 59, uh, maintaining, um, uh, physical awareness as you age, uh, I imagine is balance must be a really important key to that. So you don't fall. Yeah. And if you do fall, you know how to fall. Yeah. Um, but what other things do you do you talk about with? Do you work with older people or are they all like young bucks who no, want to no. run around in the woods? Yeah, our oldest student is 73 um, years old uh, that we've had at, a, at, a, at an event and like our online academy quite a few of the students are in their 40s and 50s um yeah it's, it's quite interesting because you know parkour is really associated with young men but our 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 student group is more women than men and you know more 40 mm. year olds than 20 year olds um which is awesome i really love that uh i also love working with the 20 year olds and doing crazy stuff but um but i think that you know 
human beings are supposed to be physically capable much later in life. And modern life is a kind of a combination of overuse injuries stacked on underuse injuries. Right. So you have you have a lot of atrophy happening to your body, and then you have specific ways that you're you're getting pattern overload over and over again, typing, sitting, and and your body is essentially not operating as it is. So uh you know, I love parkour and I love martial arts and I love taking people into these, you know, the intensity of that. And I think there's something to be, that's really about like spiritual development. Uh, that's about the development of character that comes through these more intense practices. Um, but natural movement doesn't have to be that, right? There's, we draw a division between sort of movement as a skill cultivation practice, or maybe we can talk about three things, movement, lifestyle, movement for um, a tribute development, right? Like that's where exercise comes in. And I do, I think it actually has a role for us because natural movement is great. And if you can get all that you need from natural movement, perfect. But if you've been starved forever and you know, you have scurvy, like sometimes you just need some vitamin C and like, let's, let's get you, the, let's get you what you need. So I think sometimes we need some supplements, right? If you have to sit at a desk mm. for eight hours a day, then you need to do some specific stretching to open you up and you need to do some, some kind of strength exercises to capture the fact that your body's just not experiencing forces enough. Um, but we have movement lifestyle, we have exercise, and then we have movement as a skill practice. And as a skill practice, there's this capacity to really learn lessons about yourself. And I think parkour and martial arts and you know playing with objects are kind of the, the, the most fundamental versions of those. But it could be skiing, it could be surfing, it could be you know other things. Dance is also really important. Um, but the movement lifestyle piece is big, and we're huge fans of Katie Bowman, who I'm sure you're aware of, you know, where she talks about how do we get more movement out of our lifestyle. Yeah. So you need to yeah. work. I saw right. a video of her that was something – it was about her house. How she had designed yeah. her house to incur – like she had to bend down to get the yeah. plates. They weren't up convenient. You had to, like, get mm -hmm. down. And, and I remember there were, like, all these uh, – she had this really cool um, river stone – platform just inside the front door so her feet yeah. would you get the the feel of the stone texture yeah yeah more texture yeah. in your life so i just moved my family from seattle to bellingham um and we we now have an open field uh next to our house and then across from the uh, us is lake Patton. so now we get to walk every day to the lake walk around the lake i do the the cold dip every day mm. um and you know, so I always advocate like the first thing that people, the biggest missing movement nutrient for most people is actually just walking, right? Like the average hunter forager is going to walk 10 miles a day, right? If you can get two and a half miles a day in, you're going to be doing an immense amount for your health. Second big movement nutrient that people are, are missing is time spent on the ground. You need to be getting your butt down on the ground and getting up off the ground regularly and moving through mm -hmm. a lot of positions. When you don't do that, your, your mobility atrophies, right? Mm -hmm. And and your ability to take a fall becomes much, much worse, right? And that's the biggest danger as we age is that we're just going to fall down. Right. Um, and then, you know, weightlifting and parkour and jumping, stuff like that, that loads the bones so that the bones are strong so that you don't, you know, like a lot of people get osteoporosis because they're not loading their body, right? Like we mm -hmm. talked earlier about the idea that, 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 that forces moving through your body are nutrients in the same way that that uh that chemicals entering your body are and your body can't form itself correctly without the right forces moving through it so it used to be that the big reason you have osteoporosis is lack of calcium the bigger reason people have osteoporosis now is lack of bone loading right right 
So you need to go, you know, play some sports, do something that really loads your bones. Um, and then, uh, I, I think tree climbing is, is brilliant. Every little kid loves it. And it's been part of our, our, our biological heritage for 90 million years. And that's why we have grasping hands and binocular vision and shoulders that have all this range of motion and upright chest. And now the best research indicates that even vertical posture and bipedal walking evolved first to walk us down tree branches. So Hmm. like there's a reason that every kid wants to do it. So, uh, you know, you, you know, if you can find trees that are great and you want to climb them, that's good. But some kind of climbing activity, whether it's rock climbing, you know, uh, my friend Klefarski has fit wall, right? Like, you know, get your body suspended from things and move around. And it's inherently deeply intrinsically motivating, right? There's a reason why rock wall gyms are so popular, but I love rock walls and, you know, going to them, but the thing that's weird to me is it's like, well, you didn't evolve to climb rocks. Mostly you evolved to climb trees and there are trees mm. all over the place and people pay $15 to go into a rock climbing gym. It's like, that's great. And if it's there's community there, it's awesome. But like, maybe just climb the tree in your backyard. Yeah. Yeah. You know who Paul Stamets is? Yeah. He's the mushroom guy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever hear his story about when he climbed the tree in the thunderstorm? No, I have my own story about that, but I'm curious to hear his story. Uh, well, I don't want to ruin it for you because yeah. it's, okay, it's a it really good story. And um, I, talking to you has made me think of it in a different way because, um, you know, he, he tells this, he told the story on Rogan's podcast. So if you just Google yeah. Rogan Stamets yeah, yeah, climbing it tree, it'll pop up, right? Uh, I think people have even sort of done animations of this of him telling the story, um, but it's it's a pivotal moment in his life. It's a, a really important experience that he has that changed the course of his life. And uh, he took um, some mushrooms and climbed this tree and watched the storm come in. And um, and I've always thought of that story as a story about the transformative power of psilocybin mushrooms. But talking with you, it occurs to me that it's also a story about the transformative power of climbing trees. Yeah. There's a reason he climbed that tree. And there was a sense of safety, I think, that he felt being in the tree, which he's probably never thought about in terms of primordial proto-human existence. Um, that allowed that ex- him to have yeah. the experience that he did. Um, well, what's your story? Oh, I just I, you know I have I, I climbed a tree in a in a in a lightning storm once and watched the lightning and then uh, and then uh, I climbed down and swam out into the middle of a lake and lay on my back and watched this lightning storm, which was like a, a <laughs> ring of lightning around the lake. Like the the it, it was completely clear, like an eye above me, huh. and then there was these like this lightning all around in circles, which I realized those are the two most dangerous things you can do. Storm afterwards. <laughs> and then you went golfing, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, a, it was one of the most like, you know, oneness experiences I've had, like just completely disappearing into this extraordinary thing that was happening. Yeah. But I liked what you said. Like, you know, I was telling you that I had, you know, some conflicts with my dad and stuff when I was little. And one of my, sort of self-healing techniques was to climb a tree during a windstorm. There was something really soothing to me about the way that the, 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 the feeling of being 
held by the branches while the world was chaotic and scary, mm. right? Yeah. And to just feel like the, brand, the, the tree held me. And it was so, so strong. Um, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. But, but yeah, the, one of our, you know, our, I told you, well, I told you on the version of this podcast that isn't going out or the version of the intro that Evolve Move Play is about, you know, the idea that we evolve for movement, not sedentism, and we need play to actually get us to move. And that, that's what the name was. But over time, what I've recognized is that fundamentally we're about helping people find meaning in their lives and that that the, the, the biggest problem that people face is that they that they're disconnected from anything that gives life a deep sense of meaning and so then we ask the question well what is it that that we need to reconnect to what do we need to reintegrate how do we need to become humans again and what we found through our work is that we we forget that we're bodies and we 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 get disconnected from this and we and our culture is so surface oriented that we start to experience our body not as our not as the thing that that we're in but as the way that it's perceived by other people mm. like my my daughters right or you know people talk about their looks all the time and i'm like that's great like if you're beautiful you're beautiful and i'm very happy for you that you're beautiful but i i just don't want your beauty to to become more important than your experience of being in your own body. Yeah. Right. So how do we get people to reintegrate to the body? And, you know, uh, that'd be a whole nother philosophical genre on Christianity and Nietzsche's critique and the reclamation of the body. But, but there's something really beautiful there and movement gives us that. And movement is how we take the embodiment and embed it in the environment. Right. Like we, we need to be bodies, but we don't only need to be bodies. We need to be bodies that are connected to the world around us and particularly to the natural world, right? You know, doing parkour in, in the city is great. Doing skateboarding, whatever is great, but there's something about soil. There's something about trees. You know, that stuff has been with us for the entirety of our evolution. And when we reconnect to it, it moves us in a certain way. Mm. And then we re need to reconnect with, with, you know, actually being aware of what's in our own heads, right? Not just, not just processing the monkey mind in here, arguing on Twitter, but like actually, integrating the different aspects of the self and then we need to be part of a community like none of this stuff really really sort of has the transformative power that it could have until it enters the realm of your relationships and the social world that you live within uh, what i tell you it's a pretty good one huh uh, ironically we lost our connection right there uh, we reconnected, um, but there were technical difficulties and it was confusion and chaos. So, um, and, and as I said to Rafe, like it was like the gods of technology were telling us that was the perfect spot to stop because <clears throat> he really summed things up so beautifully. Um, so I hope you check out his stuff at, uh, where was it? Evolve Move Play. Yeah, evolvemoveplay.com. And uh, also reminder to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're into that sort of thing, Chris Ryan. And another guest, uh, an upcoming guest, I've got a lot of recordings scheduled. Um, while you're on YouTube, check out this dude. I'm going to have him on soon. He's really interesting. I just sort of came across his YouTube channel recently. His name's Craig Adams, K-R-A-I-G Adams. Uh, he's got well over half a million subscribers, 
and uh, I just stumbled across his one of his videos and I went down the rabbit hole. What he does is he makes these videos of himself hiking alone, several day hikes, 50 to, I don't know, 100 miles sometimes uh, in various parts of the world. He's a really talented photographer, videographer. Um, and it's awesome. It's I don't know what it is. It's kind of like people talk about this. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's it's when someone whispers in the microphone and, you know, or they make these sounds where they're like you know, fingertips on skin or something and people get off on this. Well, I never understood that. Like, why would you get off on watching, you know, close-ups of of someone's fingertips brushing their skin or whatever and listening to it um but there's something about watching this dude just walking through these beautiful landscapes that is supremely relaxing and he gets the the details like you know the just tying his shoes in the morning and breaking down his tent and shaking the water off the rain fly and, you know, just the stuff, the sort of normal stuff that you do when you're camping. Um, he hits those and he, he photographs them in a very beautiful way. So anyway, check him out. Uh, Craig Adams is his YouTube channel. Um, I started, let's see, the first one I watched, he was on some island off the coast of Iceland. Uh, and that really piqued my interest. Yeah, hiking 60 miles alone in Hornstrandir, Iceland. That was the first one I watched. And then uh, I started just going on and on and on and looking at all this stuff. So I've probably watched a dozen of them at this point. So he's coming up soon. Check that out. All right, that's enough for me. Thank you for listening. I will leave you with my lovely mother and the beautiful and amazing Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm. Thanks for supporting the podcast in whatever way you do. I hope things are going well for you out there. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially speaking, paleo modern and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation. 
Dance into the ground. 